0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Rhine, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Today's episode features Wiley Rhine attorney Sarah Baxenberg and Tom McMahon of the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, discussing the recently passed FAA reauthorization bill, which is currently awaiting the president's signature. Sarah and Tom give AUVSI and Wiley Rhines three key takeaways for the UAS industry from the new legislation. My name is Sarah Baxenberg, and I'm an attorney at Wiley Rhines Telecommunications Media and Technology Practice and the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Practice. I'm joined today by Tom McMahon of the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International. AUVSI is the world's largest trade association dedicated to unmanned systems. Tom, could you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what AUVSI does?
1: Oh, sure. And thanks for having me here today, Sarah. Well, AUVSI was started, believe it or not, back in 1972. So we've been around for 46 years. It was started at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And it was some Air Force personnel that wanted to get together, for one thing, to keep The research they were doing at that time on drones during the Vietnam War, but also an opportunity to network with other people who were working in robotics at that time. And through the years, as the association grew, they started having a conference, and that's turned into the world's largest conference for unmanned systems and robotics called Exponential, which we held this past year in Denver and next year will be in Chicago. And AUVSI works on all aspects of the robotics and unmanned systems industry, not just air, but also working on ground systems and, believe it or not, maritime systems. There's a lot going on right now in the maritime community of using unmanned systems for shipping, certainly on top of the water, but also on submersibles. Uh, Being able to have an unmanned submarine means that the craft can stay underwater for a long time and therefore can do more research while it's underwater without having to come back up periodically to accommodate the people who are on the vessel. So a lot's going on there in the maritime world as well. But AUVSI has members all throughout the country. We've got about 30 chapters throughout the United States. We also have chapters overseas. So that puts the international in AUVSI's name and be working with regulatory bodies, of course, here in the United States with the FAA, the FCC, when it comes to spectrum issues, also working with the Department of Commerce, Uh, working with the Maritime Commission here in the United States, and then working with other international bodies for air and ground and maritime systems.
0: So I think it's safe to say that AUVSI has a wide breadth of knowledge about all things related to unmanned aircraft systems, UAS or drones, and those policy issues affecting UAS today.
1: Well, we do because we have Thousands of members literally working in this community on air, as well as we do the other domains as well. But air is getting a lot of attention because of the Senate passing the FAA bill yesterday and Congress or the House passing it last week. And we expect the president to sign the bill into law here probably as soon as next week. So we're moving along very quickly. And we're also very pleased because this is, as typical with an FAA bill, goes over several years. It's a five year bill. So that will give the agency a lot of certainty as it moves forward. Now, of course, all of it doesn't really pertain to unmanned systems. There's a lot in the FAA bill that pertains to commercial aviation. I think there's something in there about how wide seats can be in an airplane that the FAA will determine those things moving forward. So there's a lot in there for passengers who are flying in the air system. But there is an entire section of the bill dedicated to unmanned systems. And what we see in those provisions we think are very helpful for supporting the further growth of the industry.
0: And you mentioned that this is a a five-year bill, and it's really significant because it is the first time that we've seen comprehensive uh, FAA legislation since the 2012 FAA Modernization and Reform Act. And that was where the FAA first got its mandate to integrate drones into the airspace. So this is definitely significant legislation, and there's a lot here, as you mentioned, that all users of the airspace should be looking at, but particularly also that users of unmanned aircraft systems should be interested in. So I think we were talking and we kind of thought there were three main takeaways that the UAS industry should take away from the reauthorization bill. And the first one of those is that Congress is definitely interested in moving the commercial UAS industry forward. And it's thinking about all of the legislative authorization that needs to be in place and everything that the FAA needs to do to ensure that uh, UAS are being integrated into the airspace. I think the first significant provision there is Section 349, which repeals Section 336 of the FMRA. Now, Section 336 divested the FAA of all regulatory authority over hobbyist drones that met certain conditions. Although this carve-out was intended to be fairly narrow for those really serious hobbyists, you know, those affiliated with the Academy of Model Aeronautics, those have been doing this for years, it's kind of developed into this broad exemption that anyone who's flying recreational kind of flies underneath. And that's created huge problems for the FAA in trying to impose regulations that it feels needed to be applied to all aircraft. We saw this with the 2015 registration rules that the FAA intended to impose on all aircraft that were invalidated by the D.C. Circuit. And we've seen this issue come up again with remote identification. The security stakeholders have made clear that the ability to remotely identify drones is very important and is necessary for any future rulemakings on expanded UAS operations. But with Section 336, the FAA's hands were really tied but now with Section 349 of this new reauthorization package, we're we're finally seeing the repeal of Section 336. Tom, was that something that you and your members were happy to see? It is. It's
1: something that we've been working on quite a bit for the past couple of years that the Congress has been contemplating this new FAA Reauthorization Act. We've met with members of Congress about it because, as you had pointed out, the thing about 336 is we have a lot of respect for the Academy of Model Aeronautics. They do a great job of training their members on how to use aircraft safely. They're very conscientious about that. They operate hundreds of airfields around the country for their members to use to fly their aircraft. and They've also been an entry point for a lot of people to get interested in aviation and even develop a career in aviation. Many people who are working in aviation today can look back to being members of AMA when they were kids and, and learning how to fly aircraft then. So they do a really great job of promoting the aviation industry altogether. But with 336, as you had pointed out, it did prevent the FAA from regulating all aircraft in the airspace. And with the popularity of drones in the past few years, many of them were coming under the Section 336 provisions on how they can fly in the airspace and what authority the FAA had over them. And so, by coming up with this repeal of 336 and this new authorization to the FAA to have jurisdiction over everyone in the airspace, regardless if you're using it for recreational purposes or if you're flying for commercial or civilian purposes, like a government agency, then everyone who's flying there will come under that authorization. And as the FAA is thinking about rules for remote ID, which would require all aircraft who are sharing the airspace to be identified remotely through a digital or electronic system – This will help manage that airspace and keep it safe.
0: And I think the great thing about that is it means once the FAA can get remote ID in place, it can move forward with all of the rulemakings it's planned to move the commercial industry forward, including flights over people, beyond visual line of sight. So I think it's really great to see this reauthorization bill taking care of probably the most important thing it needed to on a legislative front to enable the industry to move forward.
1: Right. Well, as you pointed out, the FAA a couple of years ago came up with the UAS registration system requiring everyone who is flying a UAS, regardless for its purpose, that you would need to register with the FAA. And then the circuit court came up of. A- I think it was about a year later when a case was brought to them and found that, no, the FAA didn't have jurisdiction even to do that. So this is coming a long way now for the FAA to require equipage such as remote ID, which again will enhance the safety of the airspace. I think that's one thing that we find when working with people who are new to the industry is it's a very exciting technology to use a drone and to use on manned aircraft systems. But you have to remember, you're sharing the airspace with manned aircraft and manned aircraft already have this remote ID capability. In fact, you can get an app for your phone and you can watch the flight you're about to take go from one city to the next. You can find out the progress of that flight through just an app on your phone. And so there'll be those type of capabilities, though a much more sophisticated way and how to track drones that are being used in the airspace. And that will be helpful For a whole sort of things that are coming up, as you had mentioned, looking at things like flying beyond visual line of sight, that certainly is key to the growth of the industry. In order to get there, we're going to need remote ID in order to do that because as the industry moves forward, much of it will be automated and these automated systems will rely on a remote ID capability.
0: And we were talking earlier about this, that remote ID also has a role to play in the kind of burgeoning UTM system that's being developed. Could you talk a little bit about that and what the reauthorization bill does there?
1: Sure. So that's unmanned traffic management, which is a low altitude traffic management system primarily for drones. And this is to manage the drones that are being used in the airspace. As I mentioned, the UAS industry is moving more towards being an automated system, so Someone who's operating a drone, they want to go from point A to point B, will essentially program that into the drone, and the drone will take that flight course. And so with the UTM system, it will be dependent upon remote ID in order to operate, and that's why remote ID is really so essential. But UTM is being developed by NASA along with the FAA, and many of our members are working with the FAA and NASA to develop UTM. Uh, It's being tested in places like California, the new integration pilot program that was started this past spring has a test site for UTM in Memphis, Tennessee at the International Airport there. And also there's a UTM system being tested at the New York test site. And there was recently a project that was started there for a 50-mile corridor in upstate New York for unmanned traffic management so they can run drones through this UTM system there. So that will inform a lot of what we're going to do moving forward to deploy UTM all across the country.
0: And I saw in the reauthorization bill that there is some direction to the FAA to, you know, continue all the work that is ongoing with UTM and also develop a plan to allow for the actual full implementation of UTM that will expand operations beyond visual line of sight.
1: Right. Congress is very much on board with having beyond visual line of sight operations. I think they realized that something we've been promoting for a long time, that There is certainly a lot of potential for this industry. We did a study a few years ago at AUVSI that forecast 100,000 jobs and $82 billion in economic impact will be the result of the unmanned aircraft system here just in the United States. And I think we're seeing that already with about 100,000 remote pilot licenses having been issued by the FAA since Part 107 came out in August of 2016. And in order to untap that $82 billion of economic impact, we really need to have the ability to fly expanded operations like beyond visual line of sight. So Congress understands that as well. And that's why they've been supportive of having the FAA come up with rulemaking that will allow for beyond visual line of sight. Certainly the technology is here. For years, we've been able to fly drones beyond visual line of sight. We just now need the public policy to support it that will allow operators to do that.
0: Absolutely. And I think talking about expanded operations, there's another aspect that Congress is really thinking about in trying to move the industry forward, and that's the carriage of property via UAS. I saw a provision in the legislation that requires the FAA to do a specific rulemaking on kind of regulations governing that activity.
1: Right. And that goes hand in glove with beyond visual line of sight. In order to do package delivery, we need beyond visual line of sight. But the rules right now for package delivery or carrying passengers for that matter has been established by the FAA. It now needs to apply those rules to small UAS. And so that's what they're going to do through this through directing the FAA to do this rulemaking. And I think too, that that's what a lot of the public sees when they think about drones is package delivery. And there are a lot of companies from Amazon to Google or Project X, UPS, FedEx, Flirty, all these companies that are very much interested in doing package delivery. And this will be a way of having these carriage rules, will be a way of eventually achieving package delivery for these companies and and others that are interested in using it.
0: Absolutely. And I know that the integration pilot program you mentioned, the IPP, is also experimenting with different types of package delivery, including medical device delivery as well.
1: That's right. And the FAA UAS test sites have also been working with package delivery nearby here in Washington, D.C., down in Southern Virginia at Virginia Tech. They've been doing package delivery there. I think they did a package delivery this past summer of delivering a Popsicle to a kid not far from Virginia Tech. And they've also been doing burrito deliveries at Virginia Tech. And out in Reno at the test site there, they've been working with Seven Eleven to do burrito deliveries there too. But these deliveries have been very short distance. They haven't been very far from the launch point. And what we're looking for here at the test sites and through UTM is doing delivery over a longer distance, of perhaps a few miles or even longer than that. But you're right. It also helps making deliveries to remote areas. One of the first package deliveries was at Virginia Tech a few years ago to a health clinic in Wise County, Virginia. And as crow flies, it wasn't a very long distance, but to get there by a ground vehicle, it took a long time. So they were able to reduce that delivery time by using a drone to deliver medical supplies to that health clinic in that county in Southern Virginia.
0: Yeah. With use cases like that, it's hard to argue with the benefits that UAS package delivery could bring. And it's great to see that Congress is thinking about what kind of authority the FAA needs and what kind of direction the FAA needs to move that forward. There's a lot in the bill to look at with respect to Congress's dedication to the commercial UAS industry and trying to move that forward. There's a lot we could talk about. There are just a couple of other things that I thought would be good to highlight. And one of them is the effort to improve the Part 107 waiver process, because while the expanded operation rulemakings on flights over people or beyond visual line of sight remain pending. The way that commercial entities get the authority to do those type of operations is through the waiver process. So Congress has directed the FAA to make some tweaks there, and it requires the FAA to make public successful safety justifications that companies have used to get waivers. It has required the FAA to implement things related to being able to check your application status when you have a waiver. So it, it's great to see Congress trying to streamline and improve the transparency of the waiver process too.
1: Oh, right. The waiver process has really been helpful in waiting for rulemaking to come out. Of course, we would prefer rulemaking, and hopefully that the information that the FAA is collecting through the, uh, the waiver process will help inform their rulemaking and do so in a short period of time. We're already seeing an example of that about flying at night. We've done a study on the 2,000 waivers that the FAA has granted in the past about two years, and about 90% of them are for flying at night. And in its roadmap that the FAA updated just a few weeks ago, it said that a rule they plan to issue next year will be for nighttime operations. So that will be welcome news for a lot of our members who are flying at night and having to fly at night for purposes like using sensors that work better at night than they do during the day for certain type of research that they're conducting. So nighttime operations will certainly be welcome that rulemaking comes out next year.
0: And I think the last thing to highlight here is just when we touched on it a little bit, talking about the rulemaking on nighttime operations, talking about Congress endorsing beyond visual line of sight rulemaking, but really we're just seeing in this bill that Congress and the FAA are on the same page with respect to the appropriate regulatory framework and the right approach for getting expanded operations to be routine. And we see a provision in the bill that directly endorses the FAA's approach and and affirms that the regulatory priorities should include beyond visual line of sight, flights over people and nighttime operations.
1: Right It's taken us a while to get to the flights over people, but it's essential in order to untap some of these operations that would be very beneficial to a whole host of industries. For example, the FAA recently granted a waiver to an insurance company that was operating in North Carolina. And after the hurricane that came through North Carolina last month, they were able to do inspections afterwards of their policyholders in that area. And they were able to do it very quickly, which is important for assessing the damage and then getting the claims back to the customers so they can go about rebuilding after a storm. So that's just one example of why there is a flight over people rule that will be necessary for those type of operations.
0: I don't know if you saw, I saw that also in North Dakota in relation with the IPP and the test site there. There was a waiver granted for flights over people where the UAS was equipped with parachute technology. So if there was some sort of loss of control, then the parachute would deploy. So you wouldn't have a drone come crashing down on anybody.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of research going into how to design a drone so it flies over people. There's also a drone that's designed that when, if there is an accident and it does crash, that it will come apart so it will do less damage and if it just fell just as they are originally designed. So there's a lot of thought going into how to design aircraft and how to develop operations by our member companies that are thinking about how they want to use flying over people for their different types of operations. Like I said, there's insurance companies that are interested in doing it. CNN has a waiver so they can fly over people for news coverage. They'll also use it for covering sporting events Uh, Of course, public safety wants to use it to fly over different parade routes or where people are gathering just to maintain safety. They're being used around athletic events, again, for safety purposes. And of course, for mapping, that's the real, I think, heart and soul of UAS is how it's being used to do research and doing mapping for a whole host of industries, from oil and gas exploration to agriculture. Just the mapping capability alone really provides a lot of value to those who are using UAS.
0: Absolutely, that's exactly right. And I'm so glad to see the reauthorization bill taking all the steps needed to advance those and all kind of commercial applications forward in the best way possible. And I think that brings us to our second takeaway from the reauthorization bill, which is that Congress is really being careful and thinking about the best ways to mitigate the prospective dangers of widespread UAS use. And one of the big things we see there is it continued expansion of the authority to conduct counter UAS measures by federal agencies. This was already something that DOE and DOD had through previous legislation. And now with the reauthorization, we're seeing drone countermeasure authority extended to DHS and DOJ as well.
1: Right. And that's something that our association has supported. It's unfortunate that with any new technology, there are people that will figure out a way to use it for nefarious purposes. And we want to prevent that from happening and maintain the safety of the airspace and people on the ground as best that we can. And that's why we have many member companies, the AUVSI, who actually are developing counter UAS systems in order to maintain safety in the airspace and safety on property below. We kind of look at Counter UAS systems as being a firewall that lets lawful operators through but prevents lawful operators from going and conducting any business. The provisions that are included in the FAA bill allow the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department agencies to use UAS, or excuse me, to use counter UAS systems in order to protect their facilities. So these could be government office buildings, for example, or other facilities that they operate. And as you mentioned, DOD already has this authority and has recently partnered with several companies in order to start deploying counter-UAS systems at their facilities across the United States, and they're also being used overseas. We're also seeing others that are working in conjunction with the government to put up counter-UAS systems. Professional sporting leagues, for example, are now working with the government on how they can put counter-UAS systems around athletic events. For some reason, people love to fly drones over tailgates or before a baseball game or something like that. And this is a way to prevent those who shouldn't be in that airspace from operating there.
0: I think remote ID will have a huge role there as well. One recognition of that we saw in the reauthorization bill is the creation of a pilot program on UAS enforcement measures that use remote ID. And it will also have a mechanism for the public as well as federal, state and local law enforcement to report suspected unlawful UAS use. So Congress is clearly thinking about, in addition to kind of federal counter UAS authority, just the overall enforcement scheme and how to keep bad actors from doing bad things.
1: Right. And that's something that we've seen across the country as well, is that state and local law enforcement officials are wondering, how do they go after bad actors who are using drones for unlawful purposes? And so this goes a way to kind of address those concerns and help them with what type of authority they have or working with the FAA to actually apprehend somebody who is using a drone for unlawful purposes. And as you had mentioned, remote ID will certainly help with that as well, because with remote ID, they'll be able to tell who is a lawful operator and who is an unlawful operator. Of course, if you're in the airspace, if you're not providing remote ID, chances are you're up there for some type of wrongdoing. And this would be a way to, to apprehend those people and to keep them from doing those things.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And in addition, we're seeing Congress look at a couple of kind of specific Areas or events that they think maybe merit special attention with respect to enforcement and potentially counter-UAS measures, one of those is just operations near airports. The reauthorization bill requires the FAA to create a new plan for certifying and deploying technologies that detect and mitigate drones and deploy those technologies at five different airports in order to protect the airspace immediately around the airports.
1: Right. And I think that will be important, too, also for operators that need to operate around airports. Because as a rule is today, you need to notify the FAA if you plan to operate within five miles of an airport. And there's a lot that happens within five miles of an airport. There could be bridge inspections, cell phone tower inspections. There's agricultural property a lot of times around airports. And if there are companies that want to use drones for doing inspections of those properties, they need to notify the FAA that they plan to do that. One of the early aspects of The Unmanned Traffic Management Program is a system called LANCE, Low Altitude Automatic Notification Capability. And this is an app that operators can use to to notify the FAA that they want to use airspace around an airport. And the FAA reviews that request. And then based on the mapping that they have around airports and where they've determined that drones can safely operate there, they get an automatic notification that grants them permission to use that part of the airspace. The FAA now has 14 companies that are providing Lance, and as I said, it will be a stepping stone to eventually getting to UTM, but it's a very early
0: aspect of the UTM process. I think that definitely in conjunction with the new plan that's in the reauthorization are two great measures that will ensure that the airspace near airports are operated, that operations conducted there are conducted safely. Uh, Another thing we're seeing in the reauthorization in this area is new crime in Title 18 that criminalizes knowing and reckless interference with wildfire suppression. We know this has been an issue that has come up in the past, and so it's not surprising to see Congress putting a provision like this in the bill.
1: Yes, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of operators operating around wildfires, especially in the past few seasons out west. And understandably, people want to know what's happening with their own property, and that's why they may be flying drones to see what's going on there. But the downside to that is it interferes with wildfire operations. And when they're using helicopters or tankers full of waters to suppress fires, that they can't operate when there's a drone in the area. And so this is a way to address that and really be more of a deterrent. Just to remind people, if you fly a drone near a wildfire where you're not supposed to be, you're going to pay a heavy price for doing that. And so hopefully it will be a deterrent from people operating around wildfires when they shouldn't be.
0: And I think this dovetails too with the new enforcement kind of advisory that the FAA released a couple of weeks ago where they said that they were providing new guidance on how to deal with UAS operations that may interfere with first responders.
1: Right, right, because that's something that again is dangerous and something that UAS operators should not be doing even if they think they're out there for legitimate purposes, they don't want to get in the way of any type of public safety operations. And We've seen states all throughout the country that have been looking into what type of authority can they grant their state and local authorities for apprehending people who are flying in an unlawful manner. So I think this will go a lot towards addressing those concerns that state and local governments have by the FAA increasing the fines they have for people who are flying in areas where they shouldn't be.
0: Absolutely. But there are still unanswered questions about kind of the appropriate role for state and local governments versus uh, kind of the federal authorities in UAS enforcement and in other areas. And I think that brings us to our third takeaway, which is that with this reauthorization bill, Congress still wants to reevaluate or in some instances evaluate certain UAS policy issues that are maybe a little less decided. And one of the areas we're seeing that is in the enforcement pilot program that I mentioned, where the FA is going to create a pilot program on UAS enforcement that uses remote ID and has kind of a reporting system. And Congress wants to look at something like that and see how that works and see if it can solve maybe some of the enforcement issues that we're seeing. Another area where we're seeing continued evaluation is on the registration program, actually. There's a provision that Requires the FAA to kind of look at the efficacy of its current registration program and see whether people are actually complying and registering their UAS as they should be and perhaps reevaluating that registration scheme in the future.
1: Right. And I think all these things, again, are methods to ensuring the safety of the airspace,
0: and also there's an educational component
1: here as well. A few years ago, AUVSI, along with the Academy of Model Aeronautics and the FAA, started an education program called Know Before You Fly, and we're working with more than 120 supporters throughout the industry to promote this program that helps particularly those who are new to flying, again, people who are flying for just for fun or for recreational reasons, Just to remind them that while all this is a lot of fun, there is some responsibility that goes along with it as well. And when you're flying your drone, you're again flying it in the airspace and sharing it with other aircraft. And so there's a high level of responsibility that comes along with that. And this is a a good way for the FAA to evaluate those education programs, perhaps put more emphasis on that. I know there's more resources that will be coming to the Know Before You Fly program so it can be spread across a wider spectrum and reach more people. And doing things like looking at the efficiency of the registration program and seeing how effective that is, I think is also a a good method to figuring out ways that we can make the airspace safer.
0: With all of those educational initiatives, I think the FAA really deserves a lot of credit. It really has endeavored to be very transparent and very informative about what the rules are and how they work. And they really try to get the word out to people in a lot of different ways. Of course, there's Know Before You Fly, which you mentioned and is a great resource. And then on the commercial side, the FAA has done all of these webinars about how to get waivers and how to conduct certain types of operations. So it's great to see the FAA really trying to navigate this process and integrate UAS in a way that really involves the public and really is educational and informative.
1: Oh, I agree. I think the FAA has a really good Public Outreach Program. If you have any questions about operating UAS, not only can you go to the Know Before You Fly website, but also go to the FAA's website. If you have questions about how the waiver program works or how to file a waiver, there's step-by-step instructions there. You mentioned the webinars that the FAA has put on about waivers. They've done that with us. I know we had a roundtable here at Wiley Ryan talking about that a few weeks ago. They also work with us in the UAS symposium that we put on every year. We've done it last year in Baltimore and making plans for that for next year. And also the FAA comes to our events, whether we're doing it on our national conference that we have at Exponential, There are many FAA speakers there talking about what they're doing. And also we have FAA speakers at our local chapter events. So they make themselves very much available. And they also have a UAS safety team that's looking into furthering ways to keep the airspace safe and working with UAS operators, much like they have safety teams for the general aviation and the commercial aviation communities. So the FAA does, that's their primary purpose is making sure the airspace stays safe. And I think they do a great job of that.
0: Absolutely. So I think that wraps up the three takeaways that we had from the FAA reauthorization bill. Tom, I don't know if you had any final thoughts about you know, what this bill means for the industry.
1: Well, I think it's a really important milestone for the industry. It was important to get the last FAA bill through because that started us on this road for regulations to enable UAS flights whether it's done again for recreational or for commercial purposes. In fact, it wasn't until the 2012 Act that you could fly a drone commercially in the United States. It did take several years after the bill was passed for the rule to come out, but we're very happy when the rule did come out and permitted those commercial operations. And now Congress, as you had mentioned, is very supportive of furthering the industry and enabling operations like Beyond Visual Line of Sight that eventually will lead to even more regulations that will permit more types of operations in the future. Although a lot of our members are actively working on small UAS and in low altitudes of the airspace, we also have many members that are interested in flying at higher altitudes and for greater distances. As I mentioned earlier, the technology is here. We've been flying drones at flight levels and over hundreds, if not thousands of miles for a very long time now. We just need to get the regulations in place so we can do those type of operations on a regular basis. But I think this bill will certainly be another way to get us on that road to eventually going to those type of operations.
0: I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tom, to talk about the reauthorization bill. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Rhine LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Rhine LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice, transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.